All right, take your Bibles and open them up to Colossians chapter 3 with me. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 17 this morning as we continue our sermon series on our values here at Redeemer. Today we're going to be focusing on this value of community, okay? And this, this is one of the things that we seek to prioritize as a church. If you have one of our uh, black Bibles on either side of the room from the welcome table or the, the bookshelf over there, you can turn to page 1044 and find Colossians 3 there. If you, if you, have, if you don't have a Bible uh, and, and you're using one of those, listen, we want to encourage you to keep that and make it your own, okay? Uh, take that home and read it. I want to encourage you as well that, that uh, we open our, our Bibles together on Sunday mornings as a family of God, but I'm hopeful that we're also opening our Bibles together uh, with one another throughout the week because um, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We need to feed on this together so that we can be nourished by it together and grow in it together, these realities beautiful realities of the gospel. So I want to encourage you, if you don't have a way to do that, if you don't have a Bible of your own, that's why we have these for you. And there's a half sheet of paper in there that will help you get started if you're unfamiliar with, uh, with reading, don't know where to begin, that'll help you, and it'll, and it'll give you some tips uh, on how to invite someone else to, to join you in that, reading that together, okay? Uh, hopefully you're there by now, but if you're still turning there, uh, some quick background Uh, context on Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul actually did not start the Colossian church. He planted a lot of churches on his missionary journeys. This was not one of them. It was likely founded by a Colossian man named Epaphras. It's a hard one to say, or Epaphras. It's in, in, he he mentions him in in chapter one and at the end, okay? Uh, Epaphras or Epaphras was one of uh, the Colossians himself. At some point during Paul's missionary journey, he probably heard the gospel from Paul, came back and started sharing it with the people in his community. And as they grew in Christ together, Epaphras became one of these uh, men who prayed and worked hard in the gospel for uh, the maturity of these people in Christ. Paul commends him as a brother who's dearly loved and a fellow servant uh, in the gospel. And, And now, even though Paul never got a chance to visit these Colossian believers, he understands that, that he's united to them in love by Christ himself. They share the same Holy Spirit who dwells in them. And as an apostle to the Gentiles, one of Paul's missions was to, uh, to, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but then also to equip them and, and encourage them uh, in their faith and to help them mature in Christ together. Isn't it amazing that he doesn't have to even meet them to consider them as brothers and sisters in Jesus? That ought to help us understand the tone as as we get into this in a minute. During one of his imprisonments, probably while he's imprisoned in Rome, he sent this letter uh, along with a couple others, probably Ephesians and uh, the letter to Philemon, to be delivered to the Colossians here uh, in the hands of uh, two other men, Tychicus and Onesimus. Again, two men that Paul considered to be faithful and dearly loved brothers in the Lord. He mentions them at the end of the letter. He wrote to the Colossians to remind them of the centrality and the supremacy of Christ in all things. We have this beautiful hymn in in chapter 1 that just speaks of the centrality of Jesus in all things. And he wrote to encourage them to resist the the deceptive worldly philosophies and the Jewish legalism that were threatening to undermine their assurance in Christ. And as we look at uh, verses 1 through 17 of chapter 3 this morning, we're going to get this picture of what it looks like to live 
as a community of people whose lives are confidently centered in Christ together. Now, as believers in the 21st century, we continue to have the need to resist deceptive influences of worldly philosophies and legalistic religion. So like our first century brothers and sisters in the Colossian church, we also have need to grow more certain of Christ's centrality and his supremacy in our own hearts. That means that we need to pay attention to the Holy Spirit-directed words of Paul here just as much as the Colossians did. Yes, this letter is addressed to the Colossian church, but by God's sovereignty and goodness and wisdom, he's also in his word addressed this to us as believers. So we are going to dig in together. I want to pray to that end, and then we'll go for it. Father, we love you. We thank you that your word is a firm foundation for our souls, that Christ himself is that foundation because the word reveals Jesus. We thank you that, Father, your word brings us to him, that we find life in him. I pray this morning that you would enable us yet again to look to Christ through your word, to see both our need and your provision in him, and to walk together in community as one body growing in Christ's likeness together. Father, we pray that you be glorified in all things that are said out of my own mouth, that your word would go forth, your spirit would work that into our hearts and transform us by your grace into uh, Christ's image together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Redeemer is a community church, okay? It's in our name, right? I don't know if you've ever really paid attention to the, to the sign out front, but it says Redeemer Community Church, right? Lots of different church names. There are Bible church. There are, I mean, just all kinds of things, right? But why Redeemer Community Church? What does it mean for us to be a community church? What does it even mean to be a community, right? It's kind of one of those words that we, we use, but have you ever really stopped to think about what that is? I looked it up on Merriam-Webster, and the first definition that it gives for community is a unified body of individuals. Now, I think that's a helpful definition, but we got to go a little further, right? Because it has so many different applications, different ways to uh, apply that definition. We can think of community in terms of people being unified around a common place or an area, right? Like the community of Manunk or the Fieldcrest School District community, right? Or we can think of community in terms of being uh, unified in a common interest, like, like the pickleball community or the birding community, right? Some of you are in a couple of those. Or, or, or around a common demographic, like the working class community or the Gen Z community. Or in a common life experience, like, like the cancer survivor community or the military community, right? Or, or around a certain cause, like the pro-life community or the mental health community, so we have to ask then, what is it that unites us as Redeemer Community Church? We don't all live in Manunk. We're not all part of this Fieldcrest School District. We're not all interested in the same things. Does everybody have a pair of binoculars and spend time looking at birds? I need somebody. Come on. Love you, Phil. I don't know where I'm at now. <laughs> You're talking about community. See, 
It's just not even important. We don't all have the same demographic, right? We don't all have the same life experiences. We don't all share a, a desire for the same causes. What is it then that characterizes us as a community with one another here in this church? Any church that is truly a biblical church, whether it has the word community in the name or not, will consist of a body of individuals who are unified in a person and in a message. That person is Jesus Christ, and that message is his gospel according to his scriptures. That is who and what we are unified around this was true for the Colossian church in the first century. This is true for our church today. Now, our vision and mission statements, if you've picked up a handout, you've, you have these in front of you. These are reflective of this. Our vision is that we aim to be a community of broken people who are being gracefully remade together in the image of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, as we grow more and more dependent upon and confident in him. Our mission is to bring glory to Jesus Christ by helping each other connect the realities of the gospel, the message of the gospel, to the realities of our lives. We're united together around Jesus Christ and his gospel message according to his scriptures. This morning we're going to see that our vision and mission are not unlike what Paul is hopeful for in the, Corinthian, or the Colossian church, what he desires for them as well. So here's our main point this morning that we're going to focus on. As a community united in Christ and the gospel, we must be committed to a life of grace-filled transformation together. As a community united in Christ and the gospel, we must be committed to a life of grace-filled transformation together. What does that mean? That means that we must be a community that's committed to concentrating on the gospel realities together. We must be a community that is committed to putting sin to death together. And we must be a community that is committed to growing in godliness together. We're going to look at these points as we go through. First, we need to be a community that's committed to concentrating on gospel realities together. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We sang that this morning. Set your minds on things above, not on the earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, now Paul, if you've read this letter to the Colossians, he spent the first half of this letter establishing the centrality of Christ in all things and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus in salvation. Just before this in chapter 2, he showed how worldly philosophies and man-made regulations are insufficient to bring about real change in a person's life. Only Jesus Christ can bring about the change that you and I need. That's what Paul says. This is what he's getting at. He also mentioned... Uh, or, or reminded them that even though they were once dead in their sin, Christ made them alive and he forgave them completely and he united them to himself through his own death and resurrection. He took their sin debt and he nailed it to the cross as he spread his own hands and feet out and was nailed to the cross. That's in chapter two. 
These are the glorious gospel realities, right? These are the truths of the gospel. Now, here in these verses that we just read, Paul essentially tells them, listen, concentrate on these. Fix your minds on these. Set your eyes on these things. Think about them. Concentrate on these. It's easy for us to get caught up in the what-ifs of life, isn't it? On the what-ifs. What if I lose my job? What if the lump that the doctors found is cancerous? What if my sump pump quits while the rain keeps coming? Might be a little too soon for that one, right? What if my kids grow up to resent me? What if they grow up to resent God? What if I can't figure out what's next in life for me? What if I fail my family or my friends or my church? What if they fail me? Do you have a what if? If you're like me, chances are you have a lot of them. Probably more than you can count. For the Colossians, the empty philosophies and legalistic teachings that were creeping into the church were creating a dangerous what if. And that what if was this. The temptation was for them to ask, what if Christ isn't really enough? What if I need something more? What if we need something more? And so here Paul essentially tells them, listen, don't let your hearts, don't let your hearts wander into the what if. Instead, concentrate on what is. Concentrate on what is. And you and I would do well to follow Paul's instructions here. If, if, we have been raised with Christ. That's a what if, but that's also a what is. If we have been raised with Christ, then we need to think about where Christ is. That's why we sang about it this morning. Behold our God seated on the throne, right? Our risen Lord is seated at the right hand of God. That's a place of power and authority. It's a place of absolute rule and eternal dominion. Listen, that throne is form-fitted to Jesus and Jesus alone. Nobody else can sit there. He's on the throne to end all thrones. We say Christ is on the throne. Sometimes that feels like a Christian cliche more than a gospel reality, doesn't it? Hear me, church. That is a gospel reality. Even as these words come out of my mouth right now, we have a risen Lord who is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people, governing all things for our good and his glory. Hear me. Jesus always gets what he wants. Do you know that? He always gets what he wants. And in his wisdom, he knows exactly what to ask the Father for on our behalf. He's on the throne. If we've been raised with Christ, then that means that we've died with Christ because we've been united to him by faith. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Paul says our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? I think Psalm 31, 19, and 20 is useful. It's helpful in, in explaining this to us. 
You see, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not at odds with one another. It's the same God in both. We get the fuller picture of him through Christ, but, but then Jesus helps us understand what God was talking about back in the Old Testament, right? Listen to this. Psalm 31, 19 and 20. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. In the presence of everyone, you have acted for those who take refuge in you. You hide them in the protection of your presence. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You hide them in the protection of your presence. You conceal them in a shelter from human schemes, from quarrelsome tongues. What is Paul warning and and encouraging the Colossians to watch out for? Human schemes, quarrelsome tongues, worldly philosophy, legalistic religion. And he says, listen, you're hidden. You're hidden in Christ with God. Because we've died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ. He's protecting us with his presence. We sang it in the first song this morning. Be still and remember Whatever may come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. The worst that can come, all that does is put us deeper into God's presence. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Because his Holy Spirit lives in us, we are also united to Jesus while he sits on the throne in heaven. And he's united to us while we continue walking and living right here on earth. We are so united to Christ that Paul can say here in verse four that Jesus is our life. He puts it this way in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, we've taken refuge to use the the language of the psalm I just read, in Christ by putting our faith in him. And because he is our life, we can trust that when he appears, he's coming, when he appears at his second coming in all of his glory, we will be with him. We'll be glorified in him together and he will be with us. Jesus himself prayed this. We read it for our prayer time this morning, John 17, 24. Father, I want you to give me those. I want them to be with me where I am so that they may, will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Again, Jesus always gets what he wants. The Father will give him that. He will give him us and we will be with him. Redeemer, community church, brothers and sisters. These are glorious gospel realities. These are what is. And they answer our what ifs. Why? Because Christ himself is the answer to our what ifs. So let's encourage each other to seek the things above where Christ is because we are hidden there with him and he's protecting us here with his presence. We died with him, and we, were, we are raised with him. He's coming back for us, and we will be with him in glory. 
there anything else worth setting our minds on? Let's help each other set our minds on what is, not on what if. Let's be a community that's committed to concentrating on gospel realities together. When we are a community that is committed to, be, to concentrating on gospel realities together, then we will also be a community that is committed to putting sin to death together. Look at verses 5 through 11. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. You once walked in these when you were living in them. But now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You're being renewed in in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. This, This section starts out by saying, therefore, right? We see that therefore, we gotta ask what's the therefore, therefore, right? He's saying in light of these gospel realities that I just reminded you of, in light of what is, here's what we must do. Since our minds are set on things above and not on earthly things, we should put to death what belongs to earthly nature, to our earthly nature. Everything that is not from above, that is, we should put to death our sin. All of it. Our earthly nature died when we put our faith in Christ. Our old sinful self, to use Paul's words from Galatians, was crucified with Christ, right? Jesus is now our life. Jesus is the new self that we have put on. We're new creations in him. But we are painfully aware, aren't we, that even though the penalty of our sin has been removed, it was nailed to the cross, paid in full by Jesus, even though that penalty has been removed, the presence of sin has not yet been fully removed from our lives. Oh, Lord, that you would remove it from mine. And it won't be until Christ, who is our life, appears that that sin is finally gone forever. But it's because Jesus has paid our sin debt in full that we can trust that, yes, while sin remains present in our lives, it no longer has the power over us that it once had. It no longer keeps us in death because we've been raised with Christ And now instead of sin putting us to death, we are able to put sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. Paul gives two lists of things to put to death, one in verse five and the other in verses eight and nine. These things reveal both a failure to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. They also have to do both with what we say and with what we do in word and in deed, if you will. It's all encompassing. Now, some commentators understand that, that all the things in, listed in verse 5 uh, to be speaking about sinful distortions of godly sexuality. In that case, evil desire would refer to wrong sexual desires and greed would refer to the desire for more and more sexual immorality. Other commentators suggest that evil desire refers to a hunger for power and greed refers to a hunger for money. Regardless of where you land on that, here's what we can all agree on. Everything in this list is sinful. All of it. Every single thing in this list is sinful. 
Paul says in verse 6 that people who continue, who walk in these things as a way of life, who continue in sins such as these will experience the righteous judgment. The wrath of God is coming upon these people when, when he comes. That's also true for the list in verses 8 and 9. See, whether you're committing sexual immorality with your body or you're slandering someone with your mouth, either way you're sinning. And all sin is deserving of God's wrath. All of it. All sin belongs to your earthly nature. The old self. That means that all sin needs to be put to death. And what's more, where the list in verse 5 does clearly speak about sinful distortions of godly sexuality, that is, these words sexual immorality, impurity, and lust, these are all encompassing here. The application for the Colossians is the same as us, although we, we've invented things, right? It feels like what, what it says here, though, is, is includes, it refers to every kind of sexual behavior that takes place outside of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. Godly sexuality is good in the context of marriage between men, one man and one woman. Anything outside of that falls into this category. It's sin. It's the old self that needs to be put off, put to death. Ultimately, what this whole list in verse 5 especially reveals is an idolatrous heart. When we sin in these ways, we're putting ourselves before God. We're seeking to please ourselves instead of seeking to please him. You see, sexual sin was prominent in Paul's day, and it continues to be prominent in our day. We live in a hyper, highly sexualized, pleasure-seeking culture that is governed by the demand for individual freedom and self-expression. It's a deceptive worldly philosophy that says you get to decide who you really are in order for you to be happy, and nobody else can tell you otherwise. But we got to be real careful here that we don't just go, man, that's the culture. Right? We're all prone to idolatry in our hearts. We all stand only on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But we need to recognize these philosophies of the world and see how they do not line up with the gospel. The gospel is so much better. See, the problem with that philosophy is that we all lack the intrinsic wisdom that we need in order to know who we really are. We need wisdom from outside ourselves in order to understand who we really are because our own sinful hearts blind us to the reality and cause us to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Our hearts are corrupt from the beginning. This is what scripture paints for us. This is why Paul tells the Colossians in verse 10, listen, you're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Earlier in chapter two, he told them, in him, in, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we come to faith in Christ, we are no longer who we once were. And in the treasures of his wisdom and his knowledge, Jesus helps us understand that. Yeah, we come as we are to Christ but he changes us. 
he actually makes us into who we really ought to be, who we really are. The more we listen to him, the more we find that the things that we once sought in order to please ourselves no longer give us that pleasure that they once did. It's fleeting. It's temporary. That's because we found our, our treasure. We found our, our pleasure in Christ himself, the true and lasting eternal pleasure. But listen, they don't call it temptation for nothing, right? Temptation tugs at our desires, even our good desires, like godly sexuality. But sin always distorts and corrupts what is good, always. And temptation's aim is to connect the sin outside of us to the sin that remains inside of us. It's always going after our heart. It lures us with the promise of immediate pleasure. But listen, it's ultimately a death trap. It's a death trap. And that's why we have got to put sin to death. John Owen has famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And as Christians, yeah, we, we wholeheartedly agree with that. But the problem is that sometimes instead of killing sin, we're tempted to, to sort of resuscitate it, right? Because we still think that we can find some kind of pleasure that in it that's missing in our relationship with Jesus that we don't know yet that we, that we have in Christ. And so we look for it in these old ways. Or, or we think that killing sin means killing pleasure altogether. Now I just have to sort of do my duty my obligation to Jesus until he comes. This is why it's so important for us to concentrate on gospel realities. The fleeting pleasures of sin begin to lose their luster quickly when they are held up to the eternal pleasures of heaven. The more we behold our God, the more we behold the beauty of Jesus Christ, the more we will see clearly the ugliness of our sin. It'll lose its attraction and we want to put our sin to death because the pleasure we found in Christ is unkillable. It can't be put to death. Is there a particular sin in your life that you're tempted to resuscitate, to sort of keep on life support down here? Something you're prone to run back to when you take your eyes off of Jesus? I want you to hear Paul. I want you to hear me as your pastor, as someone who has done that in my life. Don't keep it around just in case. It's not a harmless escape that helps you forget about reality for a while. It's a death trap. It's trying to kill you. It wants you dead. You need to kill it. Put it to death, not with your own strength, but with the eternal pleasure that you now have in Jesus Christ. You see, you're not just being renewed in knowledge according to his image as an individual. We need to see this. We, together, are being renewed in knowledge according to his image as a community of believers, as his church. Christ is all and he is in all. He is all, meaning that he's central, supreme, sufficient, most important, and he's in all, meaning that he lives in all who have entrusted themselves to him, whether they are Jewish or Gentile, American or Russian, whether they have a college degree or they failed their GED, whether they battle gender dysphoria, same-sex attraction, pornography, 
anger, lying, slander, whether they've had an affair or an abortion, no matter who we are, when we come to Jesus, no matter what we've done, when we come to Jesus and we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and we entrust ourselves to him, we're crucified with him. We're raised with him. We're new creations in him. Our lives are now hidden in Christ with God because Jesus is in us. So I need to ask this morning, is Christ in you? Have you put your faith in him? Are you, is your life hidden in him or are you trying to live without him? You see, you only have two options. You are either dead in sin or you are dead to sin in Christ. That's it. It's one or the other. You're alive in Christ and dead to sin or you're dead in sin. I want you to listen to God's gracious warning through Paul this morning. God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. Those who remain dead in sin. But I want you to hear the grace, the good news that Paul also reminds us of. God has made a way for us to be saved from this wrath. He poured out his wrath on his son so that all who trust in the son can become not dead in sin but dead to sin can become forgiven completely, can become reconciled to God forever, and Jesus rose from the dead so that we could be raised with him to eternal life in him. Don't let sin put you to death this morning. Why not instead turn from your sin and trust in the one who was put to death for sinners, Jesus Christ. Entrust yourself to him. Come to him. If you do that, you'll join a community that's unlike any other community. Unlike any other community, this is a community that's being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our creator and redeemer together. It's a community that's being transformed by his grace. So by his grace, let's together put our sin to death by confessing it to one another and helping each other look once again to Jesus and the work that he's done to secure our forgiveness. Let's help each other find more pleasure in Christ than we do in our sin. When we're a community that's committed to putting sin to death together, then we'll also be a community that's committed to growing in godliness together. Let's look at these last verses, 12 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ to which you were called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 12 begins with another therefore, right? Again, Paul is pointing the Colossians to this glorious gospel reality. 
as followers of Christ, they've been graciously chosen for salvation by God. He has made them holy in Christ. That means they're set apart from sin and set apart for God in Jesus. They are dearly loved by him. God has answered his son's prayer from John 17. God the Father loves them with the same love that he has for his own son. Paul's essentially saying to, uh, here, like, hey, listen, therefore, since these things are true, since this is who you already are, live that way. Live that way. When we put sin to death, we need to replace it with godliness. Again, the list of things that these verses has to, uh, in these verses has to do with both what we say and what we do, in word and in deed. But we need to note something else here. If we could put sin to death and put godliness on by ourselves, we would have no need for Jesus, right? Who is always compassionate and kind, humble and gentle, patient, bearing with others and ready to forgive? Is that not our Lord? To put on these things that Paul mentions is to put on Christ himself. And to put on Christ is to rely on his Holy Spirit who now lives in us. Look again at the list in verse 12. Looks an awful lot like the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5, doesn't it? It's God himself who works in us to give us the desire and the ability to do what pleases him to be compassionate and kind, to be humble and gentle, bearing and patient, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. It's God who enables us to forgive each other just as he has forgiven us graciously, willingly, completely. And in verse 14, Paul says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now he's writing to a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile believers here. Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day had a lot of grievances against each other. It's the love of Christ that enables them to behave like Christ toward one another. It's the love of Christ in them that unites them together as one body, one church, one community. Back in chapter 1, Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace with his, through his blood shed on the cross. Here in verse 15, Paul essentially tells the Colossians, listen, let your hearts be ruled by this peace that Christ has secured through his blood. You were called to this blood-bought peace as one body, Jew and Gentile together, Christ uh, as all and Christ in all. Both Jew and Gentile have been reconciled to God together through Jesus, so be thankful together and be at peace with one another are you at peace with God? Yes, hopefully. Are you at peace with one another here at Redeemer, with other believers? Is there a brother or sister in Christ whom you find particularly difficult to love? Is there anyone in this room that you have a grievance against? When you harbor that grievance and you let it fester, it doesn't take much for it to boil over into unrighteous anger, into wrath, into malice, to slander, to filthy language and lies directed at that person. But you've been called to put those things away, right? 
and to put on Christ instead. You've been called to peace as one body. You've been called to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You've been called to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. When grievances provoke us to bitterness instead of forgiveness, it reveals a lack of thankfulness in our own hearts for what God has done for us. It's the love of Christ that enables you to behave like Christ toward one another, toward that person who has grieved you. It's the love of Christ that unites us together as one body, one church, one community. So who is it that you need to make peace with today? Put the sin to death. Be reconciled. Put on Christ. In verse 16, Paul tells us how, to, how we let this peace of Christ rule our hearts by letting the word of Christ dwell richly among us. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are to teach and admonish one another in these, with these treasures. We teach each other the glories of the gospel and the ways of our Lord, and we admonish, we warn, and we counsel one another to put to death what belongs to our sinful earthly nature. We, we do both things, right? This is why we read and sing and preach and pray and practice God's word when we gather together on Sunday mornings. The more we teach and admonish one another from the scriptures in all these ways, the more we will stir in one another hearts of gratitude because we'll be concentrating on the gospel realities together. We don't just teach and admonish one another on Sunday mornings. We do it as a way of life together in community with one another throughout the week. You see, we make verse 17 our aim together. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Can you commit sexual immorality in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you be idolatrous in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you slander someone in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can filthy language come out of your mouth in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you give thanks to God the Father for sin that rules your heart? No. We know this. But can you be compassionate and kind in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you be humble and gentle in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you be patient and forgiving in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you love in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you teach and admonish others with the word of Christ in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you give thanks to God the Father for the peace that rules your heart? You bet you can. We need to be a community that's committed to growing in godliness together. We must put on Christ together. How do we do these things? First, we remember our identity in Christ and our union with him. We remember who we already are in Jesus, and then we encourage each other to live that way. To live that way is to grow in Christ's likeness. If we're going to do that, we need to study Christ himself, right? We need to study the Gospels and see how Jesus lived and displayed these things that Paul is calling us to here. We need to study the rest of the New Testament to see how Christ's people displayed these things in community with one another. We need to study the Old Testament to see how God the Father has always displayed these things, preparing us for the arrival of his Son, showing us the fullness of, Christ, of himself in Christ. But we can't just study these things. We need to practice them with one another. We've all heard that saying, right? Don't pray for patience because God won't give you patience. He'll give you an opportunity to be patient, right? 
You know that's not totally true? Isn't the fruit of the Spirit, isn't part of that? Love, joy, peace, patience. Hasn't God put his Spirit in us? How does God grow us? Yes, through opportunities, but doesn't he also supply what he calls us to? Pray for patience. Pray for patience and plan for opportunities to learn patience. But trust the Lord to give you what you need in those things. Instead of trying to avoid potentially painful opportunities, we should pray. We should ask God to give us what we need and we should prepare for those opportunities ahead of time. If you struggle with patience, think about what triggers or feeds your desire for impatience to respond in a sinful way. If you know that you now, right now, that you need more patience, think about the things that test your patience. Right now, it might be because I'm going a little long today. I'm almost done, I promise. You can make peace with me when we're done. Maybe it's stress. Maybe it's a lack of rest. Maybe it's when your kids don't listen. You just get tired. You grow impatient. Your sin comes out. Don't wait for those situations to catch you off guard. Pray for those now. Ask God to help you put off anger and impatience and help you put on gentleness and patience. Let your brothers and sisters in Christ know what your areas of weakness are and ask them to help you. Help you set your mind on things above. Help you by teaching you and admonishing you in the wisdom of Christ. Ask them to help you come up with a scripture-saturated plan to grow in godliness in these areas that you are weak. And give thanks to God the Father together with them for the growth that he produces in you through Jesus Christ. You see, as a community united in Christ and the gospel, we must be committed to a life of grace-filled transformation together. That means that we must be a community that is committed to concentrating on gospel realities together, to putting our sin to death together, and to growing in godliness together. By God's abundant grace, let's live up to our name. Redeemer, community, church. Whatever we do together in word or deed, by God's abundant grace, let's do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for these beautiful gospel realities that we've been reminded of today. Christ is seated on the throne and we are hidden in him. We're secure. We don't have to ask what if Christ is not enough because your word and your spirit testify that he is absolutely enough. And together as your church, would you help us to grow in that reality for your glory, for our good. Let us be a community that stands out among all the communities, not because we're better, but because Christ is glorious. And they see him in us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.